read concerning the things that lead up to this. Of course, Samaria was in problems. Elisha, as usual, was being blamed for the problems. And Elisha was being threatened, but he just sat in his house unperturbed about the threats because he knew where he was. But beginning here at the first verse of the seventh chapter, said, Then Elisha said, Hear ye the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord, Tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Then a Lord on whom whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord will make windows in heaven, might this thing be. And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. Of course, that's a message in itself. But I want to focus your attention this morning from the third verse. There were four leprous men at the entering of the gate. They said one to another, Why sit we here until we die? If we say we will enter into the city, then the famine is in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. They rose up in the twilight to go into the camp of the Syrians, and when they were come to the utmost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. That's just the end of reading there, because that's the story in itself. I just want to extract from there the leper's words and try to introduce it into our mind this morning. As they said, why sit we here until we die? Of course, they were forced into a decision. A lot of times men don't act until they're forced into a decision. Until they come to a place where there's nothing else that can be done. And then they have to make a move one direction or the other. And these lepers said, if we sit here, we're going to die. We enter into the city where there's a famine, we're going to die. And probably if we go to the camp of the Syrians, we're going to die there also. But there is at least a chance that we won't die if we take the latter route. I would like to point our attention to that and ask us the question, why sit we here until we die? I would like to talk to us this morning as Christians who know God and yet have not availed ourselves to His majesty and His power under the things that He has promised in our lives. And then I would like to talk to us as a church whom God has more than one occasion prophesied and said what He desired out of us and what He wanted out of us. And certainly we are being brought a challenge, and we'll have to ask ourselves as an individual, why do we sit here? Because there's death where we sit, and why do we sit here until we die? There is a way out. Now, when the actors or stage actors or whatever they might be are called out and given their role, they're giving it. They're given a script. They're told what their part in that stage act or whatever it's going to be or that movie is going to be and they're given a certain amount of time to study that and to get it down the way that it ought to be and if they're wise actor or actresses then they'll do their utmost to read every day the script that's placed within their hands and they'll do their very best to know their lines and to what follows another, and what they're supposed to do, and be do their very best to be the type of actors or actresses that they need to be. Otherwise than that, the play that they're going to be in is of no avail. And finally, life after long hours, burning the midnight oil and taking their time, so to speak, of find, of find, to find their roles in the script, there comes a time when the stage is set. Actors are on hand and all of the screens and everything is behind them. And there comes the cry of the man that is directing it as he says, camera, lights, 
and then action. I said all that to say this. Years ago in some of our lives, not too long ago in others, God Almighty has included us in a last day program. And he's placed within our hands the script, or the portion that we are going to play in this last great scene that's going to be the grand finale that God is going to introduce to a lost and dying world that's going to save billions. While the church of the living God is languishing now, God is beginning to bring water and streams into the desert. And he's beginning to reach out in what used to be formal churches and begin to, setting, begin to set them on fire. And all of us <coughs> have been introduced into the body of Christ. And God has placed within our hands the script, what he expects out of us and dealt with our hearts. Some of us for years, some of us for just a few moments or a few months. But I dare say that most of us know where God wants us in the body of Christ. Most of us know where we belong. And most of us know what our lines are. And most of us know what we're supposed to do. And of course it's easy to read it over, to play act it. But friend, the time is coming when it's going to be said the same thing with the great director, Almighty God, as he said, it's time now. Camera and light. And then there is action. And there has to be action on our part. We must know where we fit in. We must know today's streams that we can go. We must know the power and the wisdom that we have to have. And we must operate, not by ourselves in carnality, and not as individuals, but as the great screen players, we must operate when our time comes and our script is handed to us we must know where we fit in at and what we can do. Otherwise than that, the whole play is a flop. I'm sure that God's power and God's kingdom is not going to be a flop. I'm sure he looks and reads on the inside of our heart, and I think he knows inside whether we're going to know our lines or not. Whether we have just read them and we're not interested in the action part of it. The lights are good. And the uh, cameras are good, but friend, the action is what steers many, many people. Naturally, people like the spotlight. Naturally, like the cameras upon down. But when it comes time for the action, now action means obedience to God. Action means prayer in the closet. Action means witnessing on the street. Action means communion and coming together. Action means becoming a part of God's body in God's town in God's way. That's action. I'm going to reiterate, reiterate some old, old stories. Blind Bartimaeus. I remember the theme of it. Why sit we here till we die? Blind Bartimaeus is a blind man for probably his first. I'm sure it was a beggar, but he wasn't satisfied with being a beggar. He wanted more than that. You see, if blind Bartimaeus had been satisfied with the pitly little handouts that he got, if he'd been satisfied being a beggar, he would never have cried out to Jesus when he came by. And might I insert this morning that there's a lot of people that know God and are satisfied with being just beggars. They're satisfied with the little handouts that come. They're satisfied with falling after the fishes and after the loaves. And consequently, when Jesus passes by, there's never an utterance or there's never a cry that says, Lord Jesus, I'm here and I need to have mercy upon me. In other words, I'm not satisfied with the position that I'm in. I need something greater than I have. And I need experience. That will encompass more than my experience is accomplishing. I need a power inside of me that will prompt me to action. I need a zeal. I need a desire. I need a determination. I can't be satisfied 
in this beggarly position. I believe the Apostle Paul talked about the weak and the beggarly elements of the world that were satiating for some people. But blind Bartimaeus saw his sleep. What's the fact that he's just blind? He was just limited. And he knew it. A lot of us may not be physically blind this morning. Because physical blindness has very little to do with the things in the spirit. Sometimes it's an asset for us. We've seen that right in our own midst. It causes a reaction that maybe a person that can physically see doesn't get. But there is a blindness. Spiritual blindness on our part, I think all of us ought to not be absolved from it. But there's something the powers of hell are blinding our eyes from. <coughs> something as we stand in these latter days that the Spirit of God is trying its best to get the scales from our eyes and making us aware it's there. And until we be like blind Bartimaeus and know that we are limited, something in our lives is not like it ought to be. We can become complacent. I'm sure that there was more blind men in that town than blind Bartimaeus or even the ten. But blind Bartimaeus was so unsatisfied, dissatisfied, with his life, that when his chance came, he determined that it wasn't going to pass him by. What stopped Jesus? The hue and cry of a dissatisfied soul, inside crying out, reaching out, knowing there was a need in his life, and that stopped Jesus. Now, Christendom today is just like it was then. Christendom, so to speak, was surrounding Jesus. They saw his miracles, they eat of his food, he produced everything they needed. And they were satisfied. But on the other hand, outside of that glorious golden circle was suffering humanity in which they could not see because of their complacency and their smugness, and their self-satisfaction. And when blind Bartimaeus cried out, they said, keep him quiet. Don't let him make any noise. You see, sometimes emotionalism, you say, has no part or place in the church. I beg to differ with you. We need to be touched by the feelings of the infirmities of the world. And fine Bartimaeus cried the louder, you see. This was his one last chance. Jesus, the only one that had the answer to his problem, was close enough to him that he wanted to get to him. And might I stop long enough to say that the Christ of Nazareth, who has the answer to our problem, is close enough within us that we can feel his presence. I know of his reality. But there has to be a searching dissatisfaction inside of us or we'll never cry out for anything other than what we have. God, if you'll just satisfy my needs, if you'll just take care of my inner circle, the rest of the hell be rest or the world be damned. Seems to be the attitude, though, whether we admit or not, seems to be the attitude and the hue and cry of the majority of churches. We need some blind Bartimaeus. We need some individuals in Bethel Tabernacle that will see they don't have everything they need and know that Jesus walks the aisles of this congregation with his hands outstretched and says it's yours if you want it bad enough. The cry of Bartimaeus stopped Jesus. And Jesus said, bring him to me. Bring him to me. And blind Bartimaeus, you know this, but I'm going to go over it again. Blind Bartimaeus discarded his sermon. 
Heard one preacher say one time, it was symbolic, uh, he just disrobed himself. And symbolic uh, of, of just uh, taking off the fleshly robes, but that's not even all. God has always been against nudity and he's serious. He wouldn't want somebody coming to him naked. But all that happened was blind Bartimaeus had on the robe like all the rest of the blind people did, had identified him as a blind man. And blind Bartimaeus, when Jesus said, bring him to me, faith inside leap, he exercised that faith. He threw up, threw up the robe, had identified him as the blind man, and he went to Jesus. And Jesus said, great is thy faith, receive your sight. Somebody said this morning, and I don't know who it was, but he challenged Christians not to be like the man that went up to the stove and said, you give me some heat and I'll give you some wood. Amen? And that's just about the position most of us set in. God, you give me this, and then I'll give you that. And God wants us to exercise what's inside of us first, and then he'll give us what is in need of. First off, throw off the rope. Let him know that you don't need it anymore. And then walk up to him. And he passed away his strength. This morning it would be so nice if some of us would cast away our garments of death and our garments of fear and our robes of self-righteousness and hear the voice of Jesus as he calls us and says, bring them here. And we throw them off and run to Jesus. I'll guarantee you, he'll robe you with something greater than you've ever been robed with in your entire life. He'll robe you with his righteousness and with his power and with his love and with his greatness and with his benefits. Go by way, he said. By faith hath made thee whole. By the actions of what he did as he threw off the robe and he said that I don't need it anymore. Although his eyes were still blind, he threw off the robe and said, I don't need it anymore. And that was before Jesus said, Go thy way, thy faith has made you whole. And a lot of us are still buckling up to the stove and say, Stove, give me some heat and I'll give you some wood. God is saying, Give me some wood and I'll give you some heat. Give me something to work with and something to work on. I will inspire you. The little woman with the issue of blood. Notice blind Bartholomew had said in his heart the same thing these lepers did. Why do I sit here in this position and die when there's life right out there front? A lot of us wonder why we have problems. A lot of us wonder why we have troubles. A lot of us wonder what's happened. Did you know what God's trying to get you in a corner where you've got no place to go and nobody to look to but Him? It's a shame that He has to treat us like this because He loves us so much. But He'll do whatever's possible to get our eyes off of everything else and realize if we live, it's in Him and no one else. The Bible says this little woman with the issue of blood had spent all of her living, every last dime she had, the greedy hands, greedy hands of the physicians reached out and grabbed. And the Bible says, and she continued to grow worse. Asa one time died because he sought healing at the hands of physicians and didn't seek the Lord. Amen. Are you against doctors? No. But I'm against God, uh, us putting God and elevating Him to life. Did you know for the most part when I get a call an individual is already in the hospital. 
Now what does that tell you? That tells you that some way, somehow, faith is in the hospitals and in the doctors. And then says, please pray for me. We can and we do. And wouldn't it be so good if we could reverse it and put God first? And you know most calls we get are from individuals that are sick. And they're sick. I don't say they're not sick. But somewhere or somehow if we could learn just to quit accepting everything the devil puts in our way that keeps us out of the house of God and off of our knees, we could be Christians like God wants us to be. You don't have to clap your hands do this in the way. That's all right. doesn't matter to me. I'm going to preach anyway. I'm going to lay the axe at the root of the tree and let the chips fall where they need. Now the Bible challenges us when it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And how is it that we can overlook God's commandments and tell us what to do and still have the audacity to tell him we love him? The woman with the issue of blood And according to the law, she had no earthly right to touch that man. Because he had been or was in their eyes a priest. And she was unclean. Leviticus will tell you that. And anything she touched was supposed to be unclean after she touched it. And here was a woman sick and dying. No money. Very few friends. She slips through the crowd of this man that's going to heal somebody else. And with a trembling little hand, reaches out there and grasps hold of the vesture that's there and those little fringes that's on that priestly garment. And she just gets a hold of it. Hallelujah. Just gets a hold of it a little bit. And immediately, her blood flows with and Jesus stopped and said, Who touched me? Who touched me? The disciples laughed and said, You're crazy. How could you know whether anybody touched you or not? The church hasn't changed today. It still laughs at miracles and healings. It still laughs at individuals being able to ascertain and to see and know what's in the heart of man. It still laughs at that type of thing. It's going to laugh at the gifts that caused people to see inside the heart and core of somebody else. They still don't believe it. They laughed right in the face of Jesus, said, Master, everybody throngs around about you, and yet you say somebody's touched me. And Jesus said, and this is an old story, but Jesus said, but this touched me too. I've been touched before. I've been jostled before. I've been bombarded before. And friend, he still has. He's been bombarded with prayer. He's been shoved up against. He's been taken by the shoulders and shaken. Amen, by almost all of us. He's been challenged as to why he didn't do something. And he's been touched hard. And Jesus said, I've been touched before, but this one was healed. Because he not only felt a touch, he said, I felt somebody get something from me. How long has it been since we've touched Jesus and got something from him? Other than just touching the field, these goose bumps run up and down our back. How long has it been since we really got a hold just the friends and the edge of his garment and got something from him? Out of desperation, she's been everything she had. And what an issue of warning that God is saying to the church, Come and touch me, I can be touched. The scripture says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one that suffered even as we, yet he had no sin, that we might have salvation. Jesus, himself our example, 
knew the value of preparation. And he left it recorded so vividly in the Word of God. As he was driven by the Spirit, and because there was inner turmoil inside of him, because he knew what was facing him, death was there, and death held a certain amount of care for him also. Nobody but a sick mind wants to die. There's something inside of man that makes him want to live. And Jesus was as much man as he was God, as much humanity as he was divinity. And something about him inside repulsed, was repulsed by them. He went to get sued. And there he tried his best to get this awful weight off of his soul. And finally he said, Father, it's not what I want. But it's what you want from me. And then the Bible says he rose up in Luke the 26th chapter 46 verse. He said, rise, let us be going. For he that is, is at hand hath is to betray me. In other words, he got up, wrote himself and said, preparation time is over. Now is the time to meet the enemy and destroy him by my power. Preparation time is almost over for the church. Preparation time is almost over for we as individuals. Of course, the devil has set himself in array against the church, and he has right on the dock when he's going to attack. And preparation time is almost over. It was the time Jesus said for action, I go to defeat a power that seems far greater than anybody else. Who else has ever raised from the dead? And he said, I go to submit myself to the awfulness of man's hand, to the cruelty, sadistic hand of man. I submit myself. I give my life. He'll bury me, but he'll not keep me in there. I'll raise again on the third day. And I'll be victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Hallelujah. And he did. Then came a time when he rose, was with him 40 days and 40 nights showing by infallible proofs, many of them, that he certainly was alive, and this was the same Jesus that lay in the grave. He beckoned them out, 500, told them to come, follow him, sit upon the hill. Told 500, said, now then, I'm going to put the script in your hands. I'm going to show you your part. I'm going to tell you where to go. I'm going to tell you what you have to have. And I'm going to tell you what you have to do after you receive it. They stood there after that and looked up where Jesus had disappeared in the clouds. And there was such urgency in Jesus. And he dispatched some angels, told those people, don't stand here looking up there. Because I'm not going to come today again. I'm not going to come tomorrow. I am coming again like you saw me go away. And you have a job to do. There's an upper room to get to. There's power to receive. And there's a commission that you must fulfill. Jesus has said the same thing through the centuries and generation to almost every generation. Has he said, you have a commission. Go! You have to be prepared. Get prepared. You have your script and your orders. Go! And you've been assigned your role. And you are to receive and you are to give. So go. Joshua, leading the children of Israel out from the land of bondage or out from the wilderness, took him 40 years to turn slaves into warriors. These people knew nothing but slavery. And they didn't know how to do anything other than somebody else tell them what to do. And outline it for them and force them to do it. They had a slave syndrome. And pardon me if I say it, I think perhaps that slave syndrome has entered into a lot of congregations. Where we don't seem to realize that we are not slaves to flesh anymore. We're not slaves to fear and doubt. We're not in bondage anymore. We have been released from that. But we have lived under it so long. And we have that syndrome so much. 
and we just don't realize we have the power to get out from under. And the first thing Joshua did was get those kings. I think that's in Joshua the 10th chapter and told the children of Israel, every one of you come by and you put your foot on the neck of those kings. That seemed awfully stupid, didn't it? That what he was telling them is I want you to look now. Those people used to be your captains. Those people were your tormentors. I want you to know you're warriors now. You're not slaves any longer. The kings are even bowing down before you. Your feet is on down. And God has told his church the same thing. And he bruised the powers of hell under our heel. He's underneath us. He's not on top of us. Somebody said one time, how are you doing? And somebody said, just fine under the circumstances. And somebody else said, well, what are you doing under the circumstances? You're supposed to be on top of the circumstances. Twelve o'clock, beans are burning, but we're still going. Now we can dismiss everything that's been said here. We can go home realizing it's been another service, another ranting and raving of some type of a, of a country preacher. Or we can realize that when God speaks, He speaks. And every one of us have been given a role. Every one of us have been given a challenge. Every one of us feet has been set upon the solid rock and we have a place. And when it comes time, Joshua stood up and said these words, Prepare you victuals or food. For within three days you shall pass over Jordan to go in and possess the land which the Lord your God giveth you to possess. I want you to stop and look at that and you go check your Bible. These people were not told how they were going to cross the swollen banks of Jordan. God did not diminish the river and dry it up. Not then. He just said by their leader, Joshua, that within three days you're going to go over that river under the food or something, and you're going to go on the other side to that land that should have been yours 40 years ago. And he didn't have to spell out to them how it was going to be done. You see, these men and women, boys and girls under the age of 20, have become soldiers. And soldiers were used to taking orders. And they were brave. They were not the same slaves that came and looked with fear at the giants. The giants hadn't changed. The land was the same. That those people were changed. Forty years of wickedness had tempered them and made them servants and made them something other than they had been before. And when Joshua said, you're going to cross it, they immediately began to make preparations to cross. There is the secret. Because in Moses' time they couldn't cross because they were too interested in how they were going to defeat the people that were saved. And most of us, and not only us, but in other congregations, when God tells us to do something, we want Him to outline Hang just to the very iota and the core and make everything just so simple that we can see from here to yonder and then we'll go. But the secret was this. These men, women, boys, and girls, began to make preparations to cross. How they were going to cross had never been told them, but they obeyed Joshua's command even though it seemed the heights of folly. Let's look at it. Jordan was overflowing its banks. It was bad enough. But now it was flood time. The ordinary fords where they used to cross was impassable. There was no way through the river. And they had been told that in three days it's going to pass over overflowing banks of old Jordan. 
Now that's enough. Don't make anybody wonder why. And I want you to read it. It's in there. There was neither murmuring nor disputing, only preparation for action. They had to believe that man knew what he was talking about. They had to have confidence in the individual that God had set before them insomuch that they did not question as to how. They had to believe that man had been in contact with God enough that if he said it, God was going to make the way. There was no murmuring. There was no complaining. There was no griping. There was only preparation to go. Now, I mean by that, everybody got busy. The women got busy. Preparing the food, the men got busy. And, of course, we can surmise. Wonder what would have happened if somebody said, well, he don't know what he's talking about. There's no way we can get across that bank. It's overflowing. There's no way. I'm not about to fix any food for the little waste. I'm not about to get ready for that. Now, whenever the water goes down and God shows us a dry place and we can get across where they usually go across, then I'll get ready. And most of that is in the heart and mind of a lot of us. Amen, Brother Host Talk. We want to see the end of the thing. And God has only shown us the beginning of the thing. And faith must reach out and cause us to see the end of it. Johnson would never stand for no Jews. Did you ever notice the difference? Did you ever notice the difference between the leadership of Moses and that of Joshua? I want you to study it out sometime. Because to me, when I got into that, it, it flabbergasted. I mean, I stood back in amazement at the change of leadership that God made just from one man to another. And Moses was a meek man. By that, he was unsure of himself. By that, he had an inferiority complex. Your ancient Hebrews will tell you this is what it means when he said he was a meek man. He had an inferiority complex. A lot of us suffer with that. And God had to do a lot of things to get him to do what he wanted to do. And then when Moses had something against him, he went blubbering to God about it. And he tried to make peace some way or other. But Joshua come from a different mold. Moses was called by a fire by a burning bush. But Joshua was called by a soldier with a sword in his hand and said, we fight, Joshua. And friend, if there ever was a time we need leadership with the word of God in our hand, it's this day and hour. We've played around, we've changed diapers, we fed men and women, boys and girls, a bottle when they were old enough that they should be teachers. And what we needed is a sword in our hand and challenge the powers of hell and cut the ribbons of fleshly motives and desires. God didn't call me to change that. Not on adults. God didn't call me to bottle feed when we should be wise enough and stable enough. He didn't call us to be a referee and an assessor as far as solving the problem. He called us, Brother Wheeler and Brother Jim, and placed the Bible in our hands and said, lay the axe at the root of the tree and let the chips fall where they may. And any saint that's worth a salt in the bread will want that. Our lives challenge. I'm sure everybody's going to buy a tape. You heard it once, and that's probably too much. Prepare you victims. Get ready to go. Oh, yeah. As an example. And I'm getting hungry. It's 10 after 12. As an example, Achan. Mike could have got by with this before. He might could have got by with it with Moses. That was a different age and a different time. And certainly necessary for a different type of leadership. He took some silver. The one he got the name that he wanted with it, I don't know. And he took him through it under his feet. And God came. And you know what he said to God? 
He didn't say Achan has sin. That would have been individual. But he said, Israel has sin. So sometimes in our failings and in our sin, it isn't just us that suffers. It's the body that you're hooked on to. Somebody said again this morning, and I listened to two real good messages, and I'm not going to try to tell you who said what, but it was God's Word. Somebody said again, when you're standing by yourself and you're fighting, you don't give too much thought about just you getting killed or you getting hurt. And you place somebody on each side of you and realize you're responsible for them and you give it a second thought as to what you do. For that reason, God says you're not individuals anymore. I've hooked you into something. I've tapped you into a source. And you're responsible not only for your own life, but for the life of those that you're hooked on to. I guess I'll close. I gotta go with another. Maybe even more. But Joshua called it out. And he dealt with it. It wasn't easy. There was an uproar. There was a few that got killed along with Aiken's house. But he put an end to it because there was something far, far, far more important than that. And these people got a hold of something and when success seemed so hopeless when it didn't look like there's any way at all that it could happen when their eyes could see nothing but drowning or failures they believed because God spoke to Joshua it was going to be so and they fastened their hopes upon that and their faith hooked on to that and when the time comes when the time come, they did exactly what he was said. The ark was born on the shoulders of the priest. Now for your information, and I think sometimes we've kind of been like David. We fixed a new way to take the ark of the covenant. We fixed us a little cart or a little organization type deal and we put God in that. I remember when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant home and he forgot how it was supposed to be carried and he fixed him a little cart and he went after it and as he's crossing that, uh, that thing, or who was it? Uzziah, Uzziah, put his hand there and he was smitten. And David didn't like that. And he tried to blame God for it. But if it had been where it belonged, this wouldn't have happened. The Bible tells us exactly, and the law tells us exactly how the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be carried. There was rings there, and there were staves to put that rings through, and the priest that was there was supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And friend, at any time, had an organization, or lay members, or what have you, try their best to get a hold of the thing and take a part of the thing, and carry God himself and his word. We are strictly wrong. I've never seen one prosper yet that's followed after man's ways, and I never will. And you won't either. And he put the ark on the shoulders of the priest. Now in the ark was the law of God and manna, God's word, his sacrament, and his ordinance, and Aaron's rod that burdened, burdened and over the mercy seat, a token of God's presence, in whom all sin and pardon me. That ark went 2,000 cubits ahead of the children of Israel. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us when the priest gets their foot in the water and begin to walk in there, then the waters begin to go back. And the children of Israel was told, no, no, no. Not right now you don't. 2,000 cubits behind, there you go. Friend, let this be a challenge. I wish I had a house full of ministers. I've talked to that myself. Friend, if there ever was a time that ministers and priests need to get the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders 
and realize it is their responsibility to go first and carry it and the children are stand up 2,000 cubits behind. But all times, Brother Wheeler and Brother Jim, we expect the children to go a little further than we do. And that's not supposed to be. Now then, just as a parable, we'll try to get on in a minute. But our Ark of the Covenant passed over the cool, chilly waters of Jordan death 2,000 years ago. Hallelujah. And it's just beckoned us. Soon as this 2,000 years is over to follow him. And this is what he says. You prepare to follow that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way hither to four. I think those words are as real this morning as they was back some thousands of years ago because I think what he's trying to say to the church is that you haven't been here before. There's something, and somehow I wish I could explain it, that moves inside of me and makes me tremble sometimes with fear and other times shout with joy. Because I know that God is getting ready to lead us in the place that the church hasn't walked, if ever, for a long time. And that's why he's saying, get your eyes, get your eyes upon the ark and the work of the ministry, all of us, hold forth the word of life, take care of our administrative duties as much as possible and go before the people as we journey homeward. Almighty God. When we can finally close the book on this lesson of life and say it's all over. I've entered in. I've fought the battle. I've been part of it. The challenge of the lepers still go this morning. Why do we sit here in captivity? Why do we sit here while the cold, clammy hands of death, spiritual death as well as natural, reach out to engulf us? Why do we sit in our carnality when God has challenged us time and time again that there's more out there than we ever dreamed of and we're not slaves to this any longer? We have been freed by the great high priest, Almighty God. But there's a joy. And it doesn't look like it's possible. When we do it with our natural eyes, it doesn't look like it's any way at all that we can ever, ever have seen of hearing what God has said to us. But the secret to it all is not having to see before we believe. It's believing. And then Thank you.